I would like this morning to draw your attention to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, in order. We have been studying the Pentateuch, as you know, for some weeks, the five books that commence our Bible, that lay a foundation for the rest of Scripture. They're known as the five books of Moses, because he was the human author, though we ultimately understand that this is the Word of God. The five books called the Pentateuch, we're familiar with the Pentagon and things like a pentagram, uh, five-sided, five books, beginning with Genesis, the book of beginnings, which we've already had a quick look at, and then followed quickly by the book of Exodus. I just want to bring a message today, which is an overview, really, of the book of Exodus. Just as Genesis is the record of God's covenant made with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those that followed, so the book of Exodus is a record of the renewal and the perpetuation of that same covenant only with the nation of Israel. You see, the nation started out as a family, and we read their story in the book of Genesis. The family beginning with Abraham, and then you had Isaac, his son, then Jacob, and Jacob then had what became known as the sons of Israel, Israel being his name given to him by God, a prince with God. The sons of Israel became a big family, so that by the end of Genesis, there were, according to the scripture here, 70 souls. We read that number there in the scripture that we looked at this morning. The 70 souls were part of one family. That family became the basis of the chosen nation. A nation with whom God had a covenant. And of course, entering into a covenant with Israel, national Israel, God has entered into a covenant with spiritual Israel His people made up of Jews and Gentiles. The title Exodus that you read there in your Bible comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And it literally means the way out. So that's what the Exodus is. When we talk about an Exodus, we're talking about a way out, a leaving. But the original Hebrew title of the book, taken from part of the first verse of the book, reads as follows, and these are the names. Now the growth from the family to the nation of Israel is actually briefly passed over here in the first chapter of Exodus, because the four centuries contained really nothing of religious importance to narrate. So that's why there's no detail about that period of time. But what it does tell us is about the beginnings of Israel's national existence. Look at Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. So from that beginning of about 70 souls there grew a mighty nation. 
which was estimated to be maybe in the region of about 5 million by the time they left Egypt. Now the book of Exodus is really the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 50 and verse 24. Before Joseph died, he said to his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which you swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So here is a prophecy. Joseph is telling his brothers, I'm going to die now, but wait for it. God will surely visit you, and he's going to bring you out of this land, that's Egypt, unto the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's why we call it the promised land. Because of the covenant, the promise made to the patriarchs. So the book of Exodus is actually, literally, the fulfillment of that promise. Now, as marking the opening stages of the national life, just as Genesis does with the individual, it's evident that Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Because when you read on from Genesis chapter 1, And verse 24, it then says in the next two verses that Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The reason that Joseph wanted his body to be placed there in that coffin in Egypt, he knew that someday they were going to be leaving and they're going to take his bones with them because he didn't want to be buried in Egypt he wanted to be buried in the promised land now as we look at the book of Exodus there are a number of thoughts that come before us it is a continuation of Genesis it is mostly history when you come to the book of Leviticus you'll find that there's not much history most of it has to do with the details of the worship of the tabernacle the priesthood and the offerings and the sacrifices. But Genesis and then Exodus are very historical, and that history continues largely into Numbers and then into Deuteronomy. But the message of Exodus, the dominant theme of the book, is deliverance or redemption. Remember that. Deliverance or redemption. This was the promise that Joseph made. God will visit you, He will bring you out of this land. And the way that God did that is the story that is given in the book of Exodus. And we see this deliverance or this redemption in three aspects in the book of Exodus. In the first place, you have the instrument of redemption, or you might say the source of redemption. And it is, of course, God himself, but it's God through Moses. God raised up this man, we just briefly read this morning about his birth, whenever he was born, he was under threat. Isn't it interesting that we still have this same phenomenon today of people who want to do away with children? People who count the lives of little ones of little or no value. And it's interesting to see the parallel between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Moses was born, there was a decree that was made 
that the male children in the Israelite homes were to be killed. So Moses, if Pharaoh had had his way, the king of Egypt, would have been destroyed. He would have been killed. There would have been no Moses. There would have been no history of Israel in that sense, as it turned out. And of course, we're reminded of the same thing when the Lord Jesus was born. Remember, there was a king called Herod. And Herod, when he found out that there was this rival to him, he put out a decree that all the little ones of two years old and under, estimating how old the child would be at that point, were all to be killed. And there have been various acts like that in human history where little ones have been done away with by evil and unscrupulous men. And it's still happening today. But the source and instrument of redemption in Exodus was the Lord himself through his instrument, Moses. Moses was a mighty man of God, used to lead the people out of Egypt and into the ultimately the place where they would go to the promised land, though they, him, he himself did not enter into the land at that point. The second thing, I said there were three aspects. There's the source and instrument of redemption, God through Moses. The second thing is the need and the fact of redemption. There was a need for deliverance. There was a need for redemption. And the reason why there was a need was because of the bondage that the people were in. We discover that they were doing service. We read about it in chapter 1 of Exodus and verse 13. And the Egyptians made the children visual to serve with rigor. That means they made it really hard for them. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. Really the word service there indicates slavery. They were slaves to the Egyptians. They were in bondage, held captive by the Egyptians at their will. And there's a great parallel to this in the Gospel. Because Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us that there are those who are held in captivity, in bondage by the devil at his will. Held captive by their sins. They need deliverance. You need deliverance. I need deliverance. And I said there was the need and the fact of redemption here in Exodus. Yes, there was a need because there was bondage. But the fact of redemption was in the Passover. And we will at some point look at that. But Exodus chapter 12, it gives you the historical record of how the, the Israelite houses were to each of them take a lamb. The lamb was to be killed. Its blood was to be shed and put into a basin. And then the head of the family would take a plant called hyssop. He would dip it into that basin of blood and then he would strike it. He would hit it with power on the lintel and the doorposts of each Israelite house. You will notice there that he didn't put the blood on the threshold. The blood is not to be trampled upon. The blood is not to be walked upon. The blood is that which protects it, overarches everything. And that is a great picture, the Lamb there, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
One day when Jesus came walking there in Palestine, there was a man called John the Baptist and he saw Jesus and he pointed to him and said to the crowd, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. What would that mean to them? Well, automatically we'd think of the sacrificial system. They would think of the morning and evening sacrifices of lambs that they were so familiar with. They would think about the Passover lamb. They would think about the fact that it was killed, its blood was shed, that the people, that the firstborn in every Israelite home might be saved. This is the message of Exodus. The need and the fact of redemption. The third aspect of this message of deliverance or redemption is the outcome and the object of redemption. You see, redemption always leads to something. Whenever we are personally redeemed, we enjoy God's salvation. We've been saved. But that leads on to separation. And it leads on to service. And this is certainly outlined for us in the book of Exodus, where from chapter 13 right through to the end of the book, chapter 40, you have the story of the people delivered, but also the people separated from Egypt, set apart by the Lord, and then the people engaging in the service of the Lord in the tabernacle and all that was connected with it. Teaching on redemption is given through the account of the Passover itself, of course. But we also have a picture of redemption in the Red Sea deliverance. See, the Red Sea was a great barrier that stood in the way of the children of Israel. And God, as the hymn puts it, came down and rolled the sea away. He drove back the waters of the Red Sea so that the people entered through on dry land. What a great miracle that was. You go down to the shore and you see when the tide goes out, there are all manner of little pools. I used to, when I was a kid, go down to the shore and look for crabs. And a lot of them would be still there in some of those little pools of water that were left. It wasn't dry ground. Now, if the sun came out, which it didn't a whole lot where I lived, but anyway, if it did come out and was hot enough, then the water would eventually dry up, but it took a long time. But when the Lord drove back the waters of the Red Sea, the children of Israel went through right away on dry land. Not a drop of water remained. What a miracle that was. But it's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of deliverance by God's power. And then, of course, you have in the tabernacle itself the blood sacrifices and the priesthood and the requirements for worship in the tabernacle. It all gives us teaching on redemption. The outcome and the object of redemption. Now, I mentioned the title Exodus, The Way Out. It does accurately convey to us the main subject of the book. Because that's what it's about. It's about the people of Israel being led the way out of that place of bondage. But there are two other topics associated with the Exodus as being the direct outcome of it and complementary to it. And those are the law of God and the tabernacle. Now we will come to some of that in due course. But if you look at Exodus chapter 20 you'll see that the Lord gave to the children of Israel a codified set of laws 
the Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Ten Words, or the Decalogue. And the Ten Commandments that God gave form what we call the moral law. Now salvation never was by keeping that law, and it never will be by keeping that law. That is to say, our keeping of it. Of course, Christ has kept the law for us. But the moral law reflects God's character, His holiness. And therefore, our lives, even as Christians, are regulated by the moral law. I've often said this, if it was wrong before you were converted to steal, it's still wrong after you're saved. If it was wrong to commit murder before you were saved, it's still wrong to commit murder after you're saved. The law of God is not a way to life for the Christian, but it's a way of life. And the Apostle Paul, in speaking of the law, he said that he was not under the law in the sense that it would lead him to salvation, but he was under the law to Christ. In fact, he said in Romans, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. We should delight in God's law. And it's set forth for us in codified form on the two tablets of stone. These were first written. And the interesting thing is that the law of God, though it was first codified on two tablets of stone, was in force prior to that. We say, well, how so? Well, do you remember when the first murder took place? It was in the first family. It shows you how quickly the effects of sin entered into the human race. The very first family had a murder of one brother by the other. Cain murdered his brother Abel. And God held him liable for that. Why? Because thou shalt not kill, thou shalt do no murder, was already in force. The Sabbath commandment, which of course is based upon creation, was already in force before it was written down in Exodus chapter 20. Because in Exodus chapter 16, God gave a command when they were gathering up the manna, that they were not to gather it up on the Sabbath day. But on the sixth day they were to gather twice as much, so that they would have enough for that next day without gathering it. And there was to be a punishment for those who sought to circumvent that law. So you see, the law of God is eternal. But it was first set down in codified form here in Exodus chapter 20 when the Lord gave forth the law with great, uh, great display of an earthquake and lightning from heaven. And the following chapters really are the outworking of that law in divers laws and ordinances which really were rooted in the moral law, which were laws to guide the life of the nation, the civil law of Israel and the ceremonial law as well. But we see here the law is part of the message of Exodus, but also the tabernacle. If you were to read chapters 25 through 40, you'll see that God gave to Moses this command, make me a sanctuary wherein I may dwell. And it was called a tabernacle because that's actually the word for tent. It was a big tent. 
It had a little bit more structure than a regular tent. It wasn't just canvas and tent pins. There were boards and posts and all manner of things. But nonetheless, it could be taken down and was taken down and went on a journey with the children of Israel everywhere that they went. But God would dwell in a particular way in that tabernacle in a place called the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant there were these two angelic figures that were carved into the lid of that Ark called the Mercy Seat. Their faces were toward the Mercy Seat. And that Mercy Seat was a place where God would dwell. It's called the Shekinah. It comes from a Hebrew word, Shekam, which means to dwell. And when we read, for example, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 80 and verse 1, the prayer is, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Thou that dwellest between the cherubim. That's what it's talking about. God made his dwelling place right there, in the midst of his people in the tabernacle so that everywhere the tabernacle went they had the presence of God with them a pillar of cloud by day a pillar of fire by night this is all found in the book of Exodus now if I was giving you an outline of Exodus and I will give you an outline of Exodus I would say that the book consists of an introduction not surprisingly and three sections or three parts. You have the introduction in the first two chapters. And so as you read through there, you have a general preparation for all that follows. Two things really are connected there. In chapter 1, you have the people prepared for deliverance. The Lord was working so that they would be ready to go out of Egypt. The people prepared for deliverance. And then you had the deliverer prepared for the people. And that really is the individual Moses. The man whom God raised up to be the leader, the earthly leader of his people at that time. Then there's part one of the book. And in that you have preparation for the covenant. That really goes from chapter 3 verse 1 where we read, these also are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spake with Moses in Mount Sinai. And you can read on through from there to chapter 18 and verse 27. If I've got the right um, scripture here, I think I read the wrong one. Let me read it again. Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. That was Numbers chapter 3. We'll keep, keep that for another time. Exodus 3 verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. So this is telling you about the beginning of Moses' leadership of the people. Then you go over to chapter 18 and it finishes up at verse 27. Exodus 18 and verse 27 and Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. There you have part one, the preparation for the covenant. It was a threefold preparation. 
you see that the deliverance was prepared from chapters 3 to 6. And I'm going through this very quickly. So forgive me if you don't get it all listed. But the deliverance was prepared, chapter 3 to chapter 6. The deliverance then was effected from chapter 7 to chapter 12. That brings you to the Passover. And then the deliverance was confirmed from chapter 13 to chapter 18. So if you want to summarize that, there was preparation, there was power, and there was protection from God for his people. Then you have part two, the provision of the covenant. We've talked about its preparation. The provision of the covenant from chapter 19 to chapter 34. You have its institution. And there you have chapters 25 to 31. It talks about the making of various pieces of furniture for the tabernacle. God used skilled men. Sometimes people have this idea that in the work of the Lord, all you need is a good heart. You just need a good heart. I've heard people criticize seminaries and places of preparation for ministry like theological colleges. Oh, you don't need any of that. You just need the power of God. What utter rubbish, what utter garbage that is. You look through church history, you'll find that men who did a work for God were, yes, filled with the power of God, but they were intelligent men and they were educated men. Yes, there's a place for those who don't have much education, but I would suggest that it's not the pulpit, generally speaking. It's not the ministry. Men who can hardly put two words together, speaking poor English, that's not fit for the pulpit. The idea that you don't have to be educated to do a work for God is partially true. It's only partially true. God uses all kinds of people in his service. And generally speaking, those who are prepared for ministry are those that God uses. Let me just say this. I could come to the pulpit every week and just say the first thing that came out of my head. Without any preparation, without any reading, without any study, just stand up here and waffle. You know that's a good word. Waffle. I might get away with that once or twice. But people soon cotton on. This guy's a shyster. This guy is a charlatan. This guy is a lazy bum. He doesn't study. He doesn't prepare. He hasn't got anything to bring to the people. And he's just standing up there because he's got the gift of the gap. Hopefully you don't think that already. God bless his preparation. And you'll see that before the tabernacle was built, the people brought all the materials it was prepared before it was ever built. And then God used men that were skilled. Bezaliel, you might call him Bezalel if you do, you're wrong. It's Bezaliel and Aholiab and others who were skilled artificers. Men who could work in silver and gold. And yes, they were men who were filled with the Spirit of God. Read Exodus chapter 31. You'll see that Bezaliel was filled with the Spirit of God to do a manual work. Don't think that you only need to be filled with the Spirit to do spiritual work. These were men who were prepared. 
God blesses preparation. By the way, when you read on in Israelite history, the same was true of the temple. They prepared everything before they came to the site where they built the temple. God blesses preparation. And that was certainly true with regard to the tabernacle. And so we have the provision of the covenant, its institution, you have its continuance, you have then its breach from chapters 32 to 34, the sin of the people. So there's the teaching, the institution, there's the tabernacle, its continuance, and there's the testing, its breach. Then there's part three. We talk about the preparation of the covenant, we talk about the provision of the covenant, then the perpetuation, if you like, of the covenant. From chapters 35 to 40, the instructions for building the tabernacle, we've mentioned this already. The one thing that I note when I read about all of this is that God gave a pattern, a template that was to, to be followed. And it's like that in the worship of God. You can't just make it up as you go along and decide what's going to be acceptable to God. God decides what's acceptable to Him. And you read Exodus chapter 39 and verse 42 and 43. Look at this. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel made all the work. And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. In other words, here's the tabernacle built according to a pattern. God gave the template. This is how it's to be done. The instructions for building the tabernacle. You could actually break that down, chapter 36, verse 8, to chapter 39, verse 43. The material was prepared, just what I said a minute ago. They prepared the materials. The people brought all the stuff that was to be used. And by the way, they brought too much. They were told, stop, stop bringing. It's too much. Wouldn't it be great if we had to do that in the Lord's work? Stop giving so much. Stop, stop, we've got too much. That's what happened here. The material was prepared, and then the erection of the tabernacle was accomplished. And you see that in chapter 40. God said to Moses, On the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Again, let me just pause there to say, God's timing is everything. God's timing is everything. You and I want to get in a rush. We want to do things like yesterday. And the Lord's, no, I'll do it in my time. And so here we have it. On the first day of the first month, you'll set up the tabernacle, the tent of the congregation. The day that I want it to be done, that's when it will be done. Then the Lord gave all the details of what was to be done in the tabernacle. You can read chapter 40 for yourself. God here shows the purpose of Exodus by the structure of the book and then the national beginnings are seen in the nation being called out by God chapters 1 through 12 led out from Egypt and then constituted and organized at Mount Sinai you see that from chapters 13 to chapter 18 of Exodus this is all history and then you have the tabernacle the worship of it, the worship of the nation, 
being consecrated to God by means of the regular worship at the tabernacle, the place of his presence. So the Lord set up the tabernacle so that he could dwell there in the midst of his people in the camp and so that they could worship him. There was a whole system of worship that was established there. And it speaks of Christ. And that really brings me to my next point here. In the Exodus, we certainly see the power of God. In the law, we see the holiness of God. In the tabernacle, we see the wisdom of God. But throughout the book, just as it's true of the rest of the Pentateuch, there is wonderful typology. And I have to say that typology is one of my favorite studies. I love to think of how Christ is spoken of in the scripture under type and picture and picture parable. We see this in the book of Genesis. But Exodus is valuable for its anticipation of higher and spiritual truths. I think it's true to say that Genesis is largely concerned with personal types. We see this in the various men from Adam onwards. But Exodus is typical in its history as well. And if we had time, we could flesh all of this out. Perhaps we'll return to some of this later. But let me just briefly mention them. Exodus is typical as regard the persons of the book. Look at the typical persons. Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses was the leader of Israel, but there are so, so many parallels between his life and that of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really amazing. I mentioned one earlier in relation to his birth, how that his life was under threat at the beginning because of the decree of a king. But there are many other parallels between Moses and and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're meant to see Moses as a type of Christ. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord told Moses that in the future, he was going to raise up a prophet unto the people like unto him. In other words, Moses, there's going to be somebody come in future who's just like you. Notice this, Deuteronomy 18. Verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. This is Moses speaking. And the Lord said in verse 17, they've well spoken that which is spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And we know that's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Acts chapter 3, those words are repeated by Peter. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Think about this. In other words, if you don't listen to Christ, you'll perish. 
If you don't pay attention to the words of the Lord Jesus, you will perish. But Moses was a type of Christ. And I wish I had time today to point out all the parallels in his life and in his ministry. But I must go on. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, we read this statement. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So again, it's pointing out the parallel with Moses. But if you go to chapter 5 of Hebrews, it's talking there about the high priest. And it says of Christ, So Christ, just like Aaron, verse 4, No man taketh this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this today have I begotten thee. Who was Aaron? Well, he wasn't just the brother of Moses. He was the high priest of Israel. He was the man who came out and blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He's the man who offered up sacrifices on the Day of Atonement for the people. And if you read Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, you'll see the Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry is the fulfillment of Aaron and His ministry. We have a great high priest who is eternal in the heavens, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses and Aaron are typical persons. Of course, there are typical places in in uh, Exodus, Egypt, all the way through the Bible, this, this applies. Egypt is a type of the world. You think about that. Egypt is always a place that you go down into. Just mark that when you're reading through the Old Testament, how the people went down into Egypt. Now, that just was not only a reference to the geographical reality. It was down But there was a spiritual message in that as well. It's always a going down into Egypt. It's a going down when you go into the world. But there's another typical place, and it's the Red Sea. And that speaks of the power of God. Then there are typical things. We've mentioned the lamb. But along with the lamb at the Passover, there were the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs represents repentance. Being sorry for our sins. Then there's the pillar of cloud and fire, God's presence, leading the people by day and by night. There's the manna. Oh, what a picture of Christ the manna is. Whenever Jesus talked about the bread of life in John chapter 6, he employed the manna as the type. He said, Moses gave you that bread of God. But he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never hunger. He that cometh to me will never thirst. The Lord Jesus is the one who by faith we eat and drink. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. Then we think about the rock. Remember that rock that Moses was told to speak to? There was an earlier instance when he smote the rock as God told him to and the waters came out. That rock was Christ. The second time 
He was told to speak to the rock and he hit the rock twice with the rod and God told him you're not going into the promised land because of that because you've broken the type. Christ is only smitten once for sin, once for all that he might bring us to God. And of course there's the typical thing known as the tabernacle which as I've suggested is expounded in Hebrews chapter 9. Then there's typical history. The history in general. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's reference made to this Old Testament history. Let me just briefly refer to it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In other words, what God is saying here is, the history that I gave to you of the children of Israel, I want you to learn from that history. These things are an example to you, to the intent that you should not do what they did. Here's a red flag over what the children of Israel did. You're not to do what they did. You're not to be idolaters as were some of them. Neither let us commit fornication. Neither let us tempt Christ. Neither murmur ye. All these things happened unto them for in samples or examples or types. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. What is he saying? He's saying that if you study Exodus or you study the Pentateuch, you must learn from what's written there for your life. That's why we're studying the Bible. So that we learn for ourselves what we ought to and ought not to do. We're shown in the Bible the way of salvation. It's in picture and in type in Exodus. But we're also taught how to live as those who are the Lord's. And certainly, when we talk about the Exodus, the history, it certainly has its counterpart in the Gospel of Christ. And with this I want to finish today these last few sentences. I want to refer to this. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 9 in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9. From verse 28, And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he, that's Jesus, took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. The Lord was transfigured there. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were two Old Testament characters, Moses and Elias, or Elijah. Now notice this, carefully. Verse 31. Who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now when we talk about someone's decease, we mean their death. But is it not interesting that this word, decease, in the original, literally means exodus. They spake of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is the leader of an exodus far greater than that which took place under Moses. That original exodus, that way out, is indeed typical of that which Christ has wrought for us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. 
The Exodus did something originally. It brought a mighty emancipation, freedom for Israel. This is July 4th weekend, right? As a Brit, I'm allowed to talk about it. What's it all about? Well, it's about one word. Freedom. That's what it's about. I know because my wife drummed this into me since the day we met. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And she should know because her father fought in World War II in the Battle of the Bulge. To defend this and my nation. July 4th weekend is not about barbecues and fun, though it is. It's about freedom. And we should never forget that. The freedom that we have to go about our daily lives unmolested. To be able to meet like this for Christian worship. It's a great blessing and a great boon. You could argue, and I would argue, that it started way before 1776. But nonetheless, that's the date that we mark because of the independence of this great nation. When we talk about freedom, we must think about what Jesus said, Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. There's a freedom in Christ. Freedom from our sins. Freedom from the penalty of our sins. Freedom from punishment for our sins. Ultimately, freedom from the very presence of sin. Because when we go to heaven, we read in Revelation 21, there's nothing that will ever enter into there that, that defileth. There is no sin in heaven. And that original exodus that took place with Moses is typical of that which Christ has wrought for us, a mighty emancipation. You know, the gospel brings deliverance to us from the guilt and the penalty and the bondage of sin. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, speaking of Christ, he says, Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. The Exodus centers in the Passover and the slain lamb. What does the Gospel center upon? It centers upon the great Passover of Calvary and the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you know Him as your Savior? Have you trusted in His finished work? The Lord Jesus Himself said, He that heareth my word and believeth on Him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not enter into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. There's a way out. There's a way out from our sins. It is Christ, the Lamb of God.